0: Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast, which is a product of The Dispatch. You can find out more and check out our stuff by going to uh, thedispatch.com. Sign up for our newsletters. There are going to be more and more coming every day, or not every day, but every week and every month and then every year. And then finally, we will have total global and universal domination. This week's episode is brought to you by the Online Trading Academy. More about that in a little bit. So, we have a returning very popular guest on this week's episode or today's episode. He did a great explainer for us about what was going on with Iran and the Middle East generally. Uh, Ken Pollack, former CIA guy is fair to say, right? A uh, former national security guy. That's what it said on my card. <laughs> um, former uh, Brookings guy who we we at AI plucked him away because we needed a ringer on the softball team. Um, is here to explain why everything is just going swimmingly in the Middle East right now. So, uh, Ken, thanks for coming back, um, particularly at short notice. Just uh, your honest assessment. How, how, how's everything going since it's been 11 days in October since the phone call? Um, we're recording this on Thursday between Erdogan and Donald Trump. Um, Huge foreign policy success. Where would you? Where, how would you characterize it?
1: Oh, absolutely, John. This has been brilliant. I mean, you know, you have to go back to Washington, Lincoln, maybe Truman to come up with a with a monumental success like this. No, look. First off, thanks for having me back. It's sure. always great to be on the podcast with you. Uh, this is a mess. Right? Uh-huh. This is this is an absolute mess. Uh, it was completely predictable. It was entirely predicted. Uh, Trump's entire national security staff going back to his original folks and Mm. H.R. McMaster and uh, General Mattis, pretty much everyone who's worked at him knew anything about this part of the world, warned him that this place would be an absolute mess, that this would cause a collapse and would have all kinds of really nasty repercussions. Um, And as usual, Trump didn't do his homework, wasn't interested, thought he knew better, which is insane given that he clearly knows nothing mm-hmm. about this part of the world uh, and yet did it anyway.
0: Yeah, so um, just I'm sort of obsessed with this and uh, I want to give you the mic back. But um, I was trying to think about this <clears throat> when I was running this column, my LA Times column earlier this week. There have been bigger foreign policy screw ups in American history, right? You can make the argument at least. Honest people can disagree about the Iraq War, honest people can disagree about the Gulf of Tonkin and Vietnam and 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 on and on. I don't think I don't I just don't know enough about early 19th century foreign policy, but there has never been a if we can stipulate that this is a blunder, a blunder that is so individually owned by a president, for example, Whatever you think about the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, it passed unanimously in the House and all but two senators voted for it. Um, The Bay of Pigs was pushed by the Pentagon and the CIA, right? Um, The Iraq War, as you know far better than I do, lots of intelligence assessments supported W. He had votes and support from both parties. He had precedents he could cite from his predecessor. Other governments were with him on board. You can still call it a mistake, but you can't say he has all the blame to himself, Trump's own national security team didn't want him to do this. He didn't tell anybody in Congress he was doing this, right? I mean, has there ever been something that a president owns so completely?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting point. I'd not thought about it in those terms, but I think you're right. I'm kind of, you know, racking my own memory. I can't think of, of any occasion that was like this. I mean, certainly we can think of, as you point out, controversial decisions right. in American history. Um, and we can think of, of some more discrete, smaller examples. You know, Ronald Reagan's decision to, uh, invade Grenada and the decision right. to put the troops back into Lebanon. Uh, the, George H.W. Bush's decision to go into Panama. These were certainly controversial decisions. But he nevertheless, in each case, the president had the backing of his own national security team and typically his own party.
0: And there was some preparation for a policy, right? Absolutely. This is the point I ranted about earlier this week on here is that I think you and I both disagree with a lot of the arguments that are associated with endless wars and America first and all these kinds of things. But there are real arguments there, right, that you can contend with. What drives me crazy about this episode is they're, they're using those arguments to defend something that was just winging it. And if Trump really believed this stuff, th- there are all sorts of policy things that you could implement right. that, that put this, this idea you – know, like he wanted to do this months ago and that's why Mattis resigned. If that was the plan – you could have put things in place. You could have negotiated something with Erdogan with the Turks that made this a little more predictable and sane. But he just winged it at the last minute. That's Absolutely, the
1: thing. And, and you know, just to kind of pursue that theme and and, and uh, you know, widen it a little bit. You know, what we see from Trump is what we see from him frequently, which is he does something like this completely impulsive, based on nothing but his own gut, which is wrong most of the time to begin with, and almost always wrong when it comes to foreign policy, because he just has no experience of these different subjects. And then he starts defending his actions in a dozen different ways. Completely inconsistent that makes the situation worse. Right. right. So he clearly did give the Turks a green light and he initially started out by defending that position and saying, I'm going to end these endless wars, right. which again, you can agree or disagree about the general concept. That's not what was going on here. But worse than that, he then walks back from that, walks away from it, announces he's going to sanction the Turks
0: for doing for, what he. Exactly.
1: Do. For doing exactly what he agreed to allow them to do do. Uh, And he's now walking away from this idea that these are endless wars that we should just abandon. But again, he's so inconsistent from day to day, from hour to hour. He's sending completely different messages, which, you know, the problem is that all of our allies are increasingly coming to the conclusion. And look, you cannot blame them. Unfortunately, they're right that the United States and this president in particular is completely inconsistent, has no understanding of international affairs, cannot be counted on to do anything in particular, right? You can't count on him to keep his word because he goes back on it the moment that uh, he finds himself in hot water. And therefore, you just have to start making decisions. If you're an American ally, you have to make decisions based on what's in your own best interests, completely excluding what the United States might want, what the United States might do, how it might affect the United States. And this is, this is the longer-term set of problems that we're creating for ourselves, which, again, Trump doesn't even seem to recognize. You know, He treats these alliances as purely transactional. You want me to do X, do I care enough about X to do it? As opposed to recognizing that there is value in the wider alliance relationship. And that if we do X for one country, we can ask them to do Y for us when it's not necessarily in their interest, but when it is in ours. And that's been the great benefit, the great strength of the United States over the last 75 years in having this unparalleled, unprecedented network of alliances all around the world is that we can get all of these countries to do things for us when it's not specifically in their interests.
0: Because being friends with us is in their interest. Exactly. So they work with us to protect the relationship.
1: And so they want to make sure that someday if they need us, we'll be there for them. You know, nobody, most people don't realize that the Turks sent a pretty significant contingent to fight in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. The Australians sent a significant contingent to fight in Vietnam and again in Iraq. It's not like Turkey had an interest in Korea. They couldn't have cared less. It's not like the Australians had a particular interest in Iraq, some in Vietnam, uh, but not an enormous one, certainly none in Iraq. Again, in every case, they did it because they valued the the alliance, because they wanted to know the U.S. would be there for them when they needed us. And so they were there for us when we needed them. Yeah, but were
0: the Turks with us at Normandy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So let's get granular for a second here. Um, Explain to someone who's been on vacation comes back and finds out, who's Trump sympathetic, but not necessarily Kool-Aid drinker, Mm -hmm. and sees that there's this stuff going on in Syria, Uh, hears Trump saying, we're getting out of these endless wars, wants to, you know, protect American lives and bring the troops home and all this kind of stuff, and is trying to get up to speed on what to think about it. Why was this a bad idea? What are the cascading things that have happened that are problematic short term or long term for the United States like what you're in the office and Trump is about to go off script and do this what are the reasons you would tell him please don't do this and and which ones have actually come true
1: (laughs) sure um well let's start with the fact that and, and we do need to bring this in there the Obama administration created a situation in northeast Syria that was as complex and problematic as you can imagine Right, And I don't want to excuse Trump's behavior at all. Right, but we do need to acknowledge the fact that this is also a product of the Obama
0: administration. There's a lot of kindling that was left there for correct. Trump to drop a match on.
1: Exactly. Right? Yeah, the, the Times had a, a, very, interesting, a very nice headline uh, saying the U.S. built a tinderbox in northeast Syria and, and Trump lit the match. I think that's fine, but a more correct way of putting it might have been Obama. Built the mm. tinderbox in right. northeast Syria, All right? And he did that by going in to fight ISIS. But not deal with the larger problems of Syria, the civil war between Assad and the minorities against the wider Sunni population who make up 85 percent of Syria. He did it without engaging Turkish interests. He did it by building up the Kurds, whom the Turks hate and right. see as a, a mortal threat to their own government, their own state, their own society. Right. He did all that by just focusing on ISIS. And in doing so, he carved out a big swath of terrorist territory that the turk sorry that the kurds more or less occupied the american presence there put that whole incredibly complicated incredibly problematic set of relationships on ice mm-hmm. as long as us troops were there nobody could solve that problem by force
0: so when you say, just to clarify for my own knowledge when you say that the turks had Occupied. The Turks didn't have troops in Syria before.
1: They had little bits along the border. I misspoke there. I meant to okay. say the Kurds had occupied it. Okay. So they had occupied, yeah, almost a third of Syria. If you want to think right. about it, it's basically everything north and east.
0: But they are also they're they're, a lot of them are just Syrian Kurds. They're yeah. an ethnicity in Syria,
1: absolutely, right. and they represent about ten percent of the population. They didn't. They, they went into a lot of areas that were not traditionally Kurdish. Okay, right, and we helped them do so. Because they were our most effective ally in fighting ISIS. And we were determined to fight ISIS. Again, one of the problems both Obama and and with Trump himself is not understanding that ISIS was a symptom Mm -hmm. of the Syrian civil war. Instead, treating it as a cause Mm -hmm. or something separate from it that you could be addressed independently. So we created this incredibly complex set of circumstances where... The Kurds were carving out an area for themselves, and let's understand, they want to be independent. They don't want to be part of Syria or Turkey or Iraq or Iran, for that matter. They want their own country. I think that's entirely understandable. They are the largest nation in the world without their own country. We were empowering them to do so. That was inimical to the interests of the Turks. That was also inimical to the interests of the Assad regime and Assad's great power backers, Iran and Russia. And as I said, we froze all of that as long as American troops were there and made it so as long as the American troops were there, there had to be some kind of a negotiated settlement. Now... Nobody did a whole lot to bring about the negotiated settlement. That was a failure, again, of both the Obama and Trump administrations. And because, in particular, the Syrians, Russians, and Iranians always expected that we were going to leave right. because it was clear that neither Obama nor Trump wanted to stay, their feeling was we can kind of wait you Americans out. Mm-hmm. right? And what Trump did was basically unleash All those forces, right? He broke the dam and now all of those forces are rushing in. By agreeing to pull the American troops back from the border with Turkey, he allowed the Turks to come in to use force to try to solve their problems with the Kurds. The moment that happened, the Kurds had no choice they had to find somebody to protect them. If the Americans weren't going to do it, it had to be somebody else. And the only other candidate was the alliance between Assad, the Iranians, and the Russians. And Mm -hmm. by the way, again, as I mentioned earlier, General, this was totally predicted. Um, I've known for two years that the Kurds had back-channel negotiations with the Assad regime and with the Russians, where they were saying, we're afraid the Americans are going to betray us. Mm -hmm. When the Americans betray us... We've got no choice. We've got – you guys have got to help us. And they've been negotiating the terms. What they were hoping was that the American presence would make the the Assad regime in Russia more willing to give them some degree of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And they were hoping that they could extract that. But as I said, they weren't having a whole lot of success because everything that Damascus and Moscow heard from Trump is, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Right. And therefore, the Kurds really didn't have much leverage. They kept resisting, but they knew that at some point they were going to have to do that. That's why, you know, within a week of Trump agreeing to pull back the American troops, they were able to strike a deal with the Assad regime to bring the Syrians in. So what do we have now? We've got the Turks occupying parts of the border. The Turks are using their own proxies and their own forces to beat up on the Kurds, our former allies. We've abandoned our former allies who have turned to our worst enemies, Mm -hmm. the Assad regime, the Iranians, and the Russians. The Assad regime is streamed into northeast Syria. They now have control over more, most of northeast Syria. We've now got Russians and Iranians in former American bases. Uh, there's a question mark as to whether our NATO ally, Turkey, is going to start fighting with the Assad regime, the Iranians, and the Russians. Uh, If they did, would the Turks try to invoke uh, the the NATO alliance and try to bring them on board with us, something that clearly Donald Trump doesn't want? And to step back even further, the entire Middle East, and I would say many countries around the world, are now looking at this incredible mess and saying, you have an incompetent, ignorant president who doesn't know what he's doing and is making terrible mistakes, and who isn't willing to honor America's commitments to Mm -hmm. people who fought and bled with them, right? Why on earth should we trust this president? And more broadly, you know, should we trust the United States? Again, we're seeing a a very significant erosion to America's alliances around the world as a result.
0: So, I mean, all right. So a couple granular questions. Um, First of all, the Turks... Are using the you mentioned that they're using these proxies, Arab militias, right? Who specifically? Just who are these Arab militias if they're willing to fight with the Turks against the Arab Syrians? What, 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 what where do they well, live?
1: Sure, the, I mean, they're mostly from the border regions uh-huh. of, frankly, Syria and Turkey. It's, it's sort of like, like
0: Israel using Bedouin kind of thing, more or less, yeah.
1: something like that, right? Yeah, this, is, this is a very common practice. Right all across the world for tens of thousands of years, right? right? You get some group of people who have, you know, some kind of a relationship with you and some kind of relationship with the other guys, and you get them to fight them for you.
0: Rome used the Thracians. Exactly.
1: exactly Auxiliary troops, the Romans used to call them, right? All kinds of stuff like that. Um, Mostly, though, what they're doing, mostly they are Arabs. Mostly they do seem to be Arabs and mostly seem to be Syrian Arabs, although, again... Which side of the Syria-Turkey border they're all from is a little bit questionable. Um, But they're fighting mostly against Syrian Kurds, right? And that's why the Turks are able to motivate them, because there is a friction between the Arabs and the Kurds, because quite frankly, the Arabs are afraid that the Kurds do want to take over much of Syria. And of course, we've allowed the Kurds to do so, as I mentioned before, because we were using the Kurds. As our number one ally in the fight against ISIS in Syria, we more or less allowed the Syrian Kurds to expand their territory way beyond what most Syrians would consider traditional Kurdish
0: lands. Mm -hmm. So let's say for the sake of argument, you either agreed with or were a loyal um, political appointee policy guy working for Trump and going back six months, right, or the beginning of his administration, you wanted to get us out. You wanted to do this, but you want to do it in a serious way, right? You know, where you plan it, you talk to your, you negotiate with the Turks, you negotiate with the Kurds, and you try to do it in an orderly way where you make some effort to honor your commitments. How were we ever going to, is there a way to not betray the Kurds, but also pull American troops out? the way the Obama administration left it?
1: Sure, but in both cases, it would have required uh, expending more energy and more political capital on Syria than either Obama or Trump wanted to do so. Um Look, the first thing is we had all kinds of ways that we could have pressured the Assad regime. We could have provided more covert assistance to the Arab Syrian opposition. That would have been really dangerous for Assad and the Iranians and the Russians. Uh, Again, we chose not to do so for uh, a whole variety of reasons, all of which I think were foolish. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, we chose to do so. Even if you don't want to go down that route, though, what you could have done, what was being advocated by Trump's various advisors, was, look, we remain put— and we more or less say we're going to stay conceivably forever, mm-hmm. right? We can keep 2,000 American troops who really are not taking any casualties, um, who really don't cost us much at all. We can keep those guys there forever, mm-hmm. right? We kept 50,000 troops and we have kept 50,000 troops in Korea for decades. We can keep 2,000 troops don't in And we have some Syria? in the
0: Sinai since the 60s. Yeah, or
1: something right. Like well, the, it's yeah. part of a multinational peacekeeping yeah, force. Yeah, exactly. They're, you know... Probably a little safer than the guys in Syria, but nonetheless, it's it's a reasonable comparison. And then you use use that to go to the Syrians and the the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks and to say, so we're going to be here forever under these circumstances. We will simply freeze things as they are, unless you guys are willing to actually come to a reasonable political settlement Mm -hmm. about how this part of the world is going to be treated. right? And we will decide what autonomy for the people of eastern Syria looks like. And we will decide how to handle the refugee issue in Turkey, but we'll do it collectively and we'll do it peacefully. And the leverage that we will have is our willingness to stay in Syria for as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. Right. And had we taken that perspective and again, that presence that we had up there, a couple thousand guys was entirely you know, doable. I think that there's every reason to believe that, yeah, the the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrians, the Turks, they probably would have tested the proposition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over a couple of years, all of them probably would have come to the conclusion, you know what, we need the Americans out. We really need the Americans out because we got a lot of other things that we wanted to do. I think that's all true. And therefore, we got to figure out what it's going to take to get the Americans out. Right. And that would have been a way to have gotten a better arrangement than this. Now, again, I want to be clear about this. Joanna. That's not my preferred way of doing things. Mm-hmm. That still would be playing with a weak hand, mm-hmm. but it's at least playing. Yeah. As opposed to just kind of folding or I don't know what the right analogy would be, burning your cards, maybe handing your cards to the right. other players right, right. and asking them which ones you'd like them to – or they'd like you yeah. to play.
0: Turning them around so they see them exactly you can yours. So I saw a tweet from, my, from our friend uh, Mike Gallagher, congressman, mm-hmm. saying that he wanted to ask Esper this. Erdogan has been talking about wanting to do this for a very long time, right? And he's, And we've known that he's wanted to do this for a very long time. What – do you have any sense or best guess about what it is that Erdogan may or may not have said on the phone to Donald Trump to make him just say, not only can you do this, but you can do this right now, right? I mean, Because, again, you could have you, – whether you disagree with the policy or not, Trump could have said to Erdogan, whoa, 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 hold on. Give us time to at least prep our allies. We, we don't want to be bugging out of our our – our positions and give this propaganda victory to the Russians. Let us do this in an orderly way, but okay, right? He didn't do that. He just he just literally greenlit a thing that could have turned into and still may turn into ethnic cleansing, right? Do you think there? It seems to me there are only two possibilities: either Erdogan threatened Trump with something, or Trump was trying to ingratiate himself to Erdogan. But what am I missing? Or do you have any best guess?
1: Yeah, you know. Honestly, John, this is one of the great mysteries around this presidency. Uh, You know, he often acts like a groupie around these nasty dictators. Uh, you know, what his relationship is with Putin? What his relationship is with Kim Jong-un of North Korea? What his relationship is with Duterte? Right? He he seems to be infatuated with mm-hmm. these people. And, you know, you may be right that they may have something on him. Um, you know, what I see is, is more like this kind of a fawning willingness yeah. to be, you know, kind of talked into these actions by these guys, which, as I said, I don't really understand. Um, and let's remember, you know, he's done this once before with Erdogan. Right. In December of last year, he got off a phone call with Erdogan and again announced that all the U.S. troops were coming out of Syria, um, You know, tweeted that and briefly set off another, you know, absolute firestorm. Because, you know, by the way, as best we understand it, he had just promised the Saudis mm-hmm. that he wouldn't pull those troops out. And the Saudis had gone in to an OPEC meeting and, you know, basically blocked an o- effort by OPEC to raise the price of oil because Trump had said, that I'm going to keep the troops in. And then he talks to Erdogan and all of a sudden he's pulling them out. So there there clearly is something that Erdogan in particular, but as I said, I think, you know, this wider group of autocrats has on Trump that I don't think any of us understands, yeah. but he he seems to respond uh, like Pavlov's dog yeah. whenever they, they blow the
0: whistle. I, this is a wholly gratuitous, self-indulgent tangent of speculation on my part, but... I sometimes think that, like, you know, Trump has always wanted to belong to the best clubs, right? He has this bridge—he's the bridge and tunnel billionaire thing, and he goes into Manhattan, and he's looked down upon by all the fat cats. And so he—I think that's part of why he likes the Louis XIV Versailles aesthetic, because it's the classiest, right? And he thinks he thinks that's the way it's supposed to be, and that's why he loves Mar-a-Lago, because that's legitimately, you know, that's a was a Mary Mother Post place, and it's this great jewel and all the rest. And— So um, there are people who hang out with really rich people or probably really famous people too. I just don't know people who are in J. Lo's entourage. But I do know people who hang out with a lot of rich people. I've gotten to know some really rich people. And you can see how there are some people – I don't think it's happened to me (laughs) because I don't hang out with them that much. But you get used to hanging out with really rich people – And so this is an analogy. You get used to hanging out with really rich people, and you start to get confused about the fact that you're not actually rich yourself. And I think there... And so you start either spending money stupidly or you try to show these people who are so much richer than you that you can play in their league and you start paying for vacations that you can't afford and all this kind of stuff or talking about flying private when you can't afford ever to do anything like that. I kind of get this feeling that the, the true autocrats... They talk about their actual power and their ability to use their power in ways that Trump, first of all, I don't think went, went into office not understanding that presidents don't have that power. And he wants to seem like I can play that – I can be that kind of leader too and impress these guys. I mean they're, I'm not articulating it perfectly but there's this, this – this, he wants to feel like he's part of that club and – and so he shows off by by doing these unilateral things for these other guys. And I think more and more, you know, you know, you know this stuff so much better than I do, but the intelligence apparatus of these countries, they all have psychological profiles of this guy. And they must know that the way you kind of get him to bend to your position is give him opportunities to show off that he's a tough, you know, ruler who doesn't have to answer to his own people or all that kind of stuff. Two, just there's something in there that I think explains some of it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating insight, John. I, um, you know, I I gotta say that it's it's a theory that certainly seems very consistent with the facts as we know them. Yeah, um, and I'm also struck, you know, it, in some ways it goes back to a point that you made earlier in our conversation, which is that you know one of the things that's so fascinating about this presidency is how we are reduced to psychology. To right. try to understand what is going on here. Right. Um, you know, I don't remember under whether it was Obama or G- George W. Bush, let alone, you know, Clinton, George H.W. Bush, Reagan, um, this kind of endless need to try to, to go to, to psychology to try to understand what was going on. Right. Right? And, and to my mind, you know, this to me is very dangerous. You know, my reading of the Constitution, my reading of the Federalist Papers was that you know, the founding fathers were trying to build a state that was about far more than just one man, right? right? They never wanted this to be a personalist right. state. This was supposed to be a collective and that the wisdom was found in the collective of, you know, this group of people um, with experience, with contact with the people um, with, you know, an understanding of both the country and the world, that that's what they were really looking to build. And, you know, boy, under this administration, we seem to be as, about as far away from that as I can possibly imagine.
0: Yeah. So, so I have been thinking about this a lot. I wrote about this not too long ago. Remember Khrushchev's speech denouncing Stalin in 56, right? And that's where we get pretty much the phrase cult of personality. Mm-hmm. And... It occurred to me that one of the reasons, there were lots of reasons why Stalin built the cult of personality about himself, but one of the techniques, it was both an ends and a means, was, you know, he would constantly change his positions or change what the operative plan was to expose who wasn't loyal to him. And then he'd kill them, right? Or throw them in the gulag for a while or whatever. So... He could go walk in the office one day and declare that, that that vanilla is the only great flavor of ice cream and Beria and Khrushchev, all of them say, Oh, absolutely, Comrade Stalin, only vanilla, only running dogs like chocolate. The next day, go in and say, I love chocolate. And anybody who didn't switch with him, you know, okay, he's not a total loyalist, right? And so Trump doesn't do anything like that. Trump's not Stalin, he's not murdering people and all that kind of stuff. But you can see why there are certain people, the sort of sort of the, the Gorkaites have to go to this argument of infallibility, just trust his instincts, because you can't offer a consistent through line that explains his actions, right? So you can't fall back and talk about, you know, spare me this, you know, endless war stuff. The same week he's saying that he's sending troops to Saudi Arabia, right? right. So all you got to do, all, the only safe harbor for a loyalist who cares about monetizing the Trumpy base is to just say he's always right. Because there's no other hmm. intellectually coherent and consistent argument to make. I don't think that's the way Trump plans it, but you can see how you fall back in that, you know? And, and so he doesn't to, plan
1: anything. So. But,
0: but that's the point is that that makes psychology the only interesting right. way to talk about right. him. Because you can't talk about, let's go look at his early writings, you know? You can't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, okay, so I, I want to move to the broader Middle East in a second. But first, we should talk about our sponsor this week, which is the Online Trading Academy um, Why does Wall Street seem to win so consistently? How can I do more than just buy and hold stocks? Well, on, the uh, Online Trading Academy has some answers for you, or at least it teaches you to how, to write, how to ask the right questions. The Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you a step-by-step process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. OTA's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your home. Students have been have given Online Trading Academy a 94 percent satisfaction rating based on more than one hundred and ninety thousand reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future from now on. A strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. What would you do if you knew skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence towards your retirement goals? Get started by joining the more than 500,000 people who have attended one of OTA's free classes. So, Check out Online Trading Academy. Uh, They uh, uh, have a really great deal right now. You can sign up for a three-hour introductory class at otatrade.com slash dingo. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. You get a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash dingo. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. Dingo. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. So, one of the reasons I want to get get you back on here, we had you a few episodes ago, a few months ago, to talk about the Iran deal and the mess in the Iran deal and all that kind of stuff. And then we were at a, a, a retreat thing, and I heard you give a presentation about the Iran stuff, but also the broader problems of the Gulf states and America's relationship to there. Why don't you sort of lay out... Let's imagine this stuff didn't happen. The Kurd thing didn't happen 11 days ago, right? Explain why you were worried about where we were vis-a-vis the Iran situation and the Gulf States, and then maybe afterwards, I'll ask you how this ties into that.
1: Sure. So let me see if I can do it quickly, because I don't want to... No,
0: it was complicated, but... Yeah, and the
1: the presentation I gave was like 30 minutes long. I can't imagine you want me to drone on for that long on the podcast. So let me see if I can give a very quick version of it. Okay. Okay. got to back up a little bit. Uh, When the United States and Iran struck the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, the key there to understand is that in Iran, this was incredibly controversial, right? And the people who pushed it through Group I'm going to call the moderates, which I think is the right way to think of them, even though that term always gets disparaged, uh, led by President Hassan Rouhani and his foreign minister Javad Zarif. The argument that they made was, look, we need to revive the Iranian economy. That's what the people care about. Uh, The only way to do that is to get the Americans to lift their sanctions. The only way to get the Americans to lift their sanctions is to agree to limits on our nuclear program. So the deal will lift the sanctions. That will revive the economy. That will make the people happy, and the people will stop trying to revolt against the the Islamic Republic, against the Iranian regime. On the other side, the Iranian hardliners made, of course, a completely different argument. First, their argument was, who cares about the economy? We certainly don't. Uh, And we don't think the people really do. And if they do, you know what? Tough noogies.
0: Right. They're, uh, they're bad Muslims if they think that and we exa- and,
1: and yeah. we will crush them if right. they decide to revolt against us. Second, you can't trust the Americans. They will never lift the sanctions. They will lie. They will renege on the deal and they will walk away from it as soon as they can, leaving us holding the bag. Right? We the Iranians will be bound because it's an agreement with five other countries and ultimately the United Nations. So we'll have to stick to the terms and the Americans will be able to leave. Okay. That was the argument at the time. Nevertheless, the supreme Iranian leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, very suspicious of the United States went along with it, kind of held his breath and said, all right, I'm going to try the moderates. I'm going to see if this is right, but I'm really nervous about this because I just believe that the hardliners are probably right. Well, Donald Trump comes into office and he proves them absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. The U.S. walks away from the deal. We renege. Uh, we impose new sanctions on Iran and the Iranians are bound by the terms of it and they have to stay in it, All right. So what happens in Tehran as a result of this, is that the moderates are completely undercut. Ruha, President Rouhani, Foreign Minister Zarif, they are completely on the defensive, Fighting for their political lives, and the guys who are in charge are now Iran's hardliners. Mm-hmm. Right? They hate the United States. They believe that the only policy to take toward the United States is confrontation. They hate all of our allies. They want to force all of our allies to kowtow. And truth be told, they'd really like to replace all of the governments mm-hmm. of all of our allied states. Right? The Saudis, the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis—all these guys—and of course, they also hate the Israelis and want to destroy the state of Israel. Right. Okay, So these guys are now in charge. So point number one to, to recognize here is that Trump's policy toward Iran is self-defeating, mm-hmm. right? Because what he has done is he's torn up this nuclear agreement in hopes of getting a better one, mm-hmm. one that will be harsher on Iran. Right? He has empowered the group of people who want nothing to do with another deal with him, who thought the first deal was too good for the United States, right, right? who want to fight the United States. And yeah, they don't like what's happening to their economy. But what's going on with their economy is not the most important thing to them. What's much more important is remaining in power. And they will hang on to that for dear life. And they believe Donald Trump is trying to, the United States is trying to remove them from office. They have zero interest in doing any of that. Okay. Now, To make things worse, as I said, hardliners are in charge. They believe in confrontation. They believe the only language that the United States understands is force. In addition, they are trying to push the United States to eliminate the sanctions, obviously be much better for them if they didn't have the sanctions, and they believe the way to do so is to use force. So beginning in June and July, we see the Iranians start mounting these attacks on America's allies in the Gulf states. Uh, Mining attacks on tankers, seizing tankers in the Gulf, drone attacks, ballistic missile attacks on Saudi oil facilities, on uh, airports, on all these different things. And what does the United States do? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, the Trump administration, starting with President Trump and Secretary Pompeo and the other senior officials, come out and start announcing that the United States doesn't care. If Iran attacks our allies. Now, what most Americans aren't aware of, but everyone in the Gulf is aware of is that is completely contrary to at least 40, if not 75 years of American policy, right? right. In 1980, very famously, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Mm. right? Jimmy Carter, the man who had no interest in fighting wars anywhere, who had no use for the Persian Gulf monarchies, right? Jimmy Carter announces the Carter Doctrine says the United States will use force to defend the oil fields of the Persian Gulf because they are too important to the global economy. At the time, he says it about a possible Soviet threat, about external threats. Ronald Reagan comes in, and of course, 1987-88, the Iranians are attacking, uh, Gulf oil tankers. And Ronald Reagan extends that to threats from within the Gulf, what I call the Reagan corollary Mm -hmm. to the Carter Doctrine, right? And ever since then, the United States... We
0: started flagging Kuwaiti tankers. Exactly,
1: right? And escorting them with American naval ships. And the Iranians attack our ships, and they attack the Kuwaiti ships, and we retaliate, and we respond. And, of course, very famously, in 1988, we wind up sinking about half the Iranian Navy as part of that fight, right? And, of course, let's also remember...
0: In when you me- gave, when you met, got to that point in your presentation, when I first heard it, I just started chanting USA, USA. But anyway, go on.
1: <laughs> I can always count on you for that, Jonah. And, you know, let's also remember, you know, when George H.W. Bush decided to mount first Operation Desert Shield and then Operation Desert Storm, it's based on the same logic. Right. It's based on the Reagan corollary to the Carter Doctrine. Saddam Hussein had taken over Kuwait. Right. He didn't take over Kuwait because he wanted an ice skating rink and he didn't have one in Baghdad. He took over Kuwait because of its oil wealth. Right. Right. And he was threatening Saudi oil wealth as well. And the Bush administration decided that this was unconscionable. We would not allow other states to use force against the oil producing nations of the Persian Gulf. And the United States committed in excess of 600,000 troops right. to remove the Iraqis from Kuwait. And let's also remember not just that, but to destroy destroy. destroy Saddam Hussein's military so that it would never again be able to threaten all right. Now, there's more history. Sure. I don't want to go into all of it. I just want to make the point that this is...
0: And let just know you've written some books on this stuff.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there's at least 40, if not 75 years of American commitment to defending the oil exports of the Gulf nations, not because we like the Gulf states, not because we import our oil from them, but because the oil production of the Gulf was is and is likely to remain for decades to come a linchpin of the global economy. Right. right? And the global economy goes and our economy goes with it. And here was Donald Trump in June and July of this year saying, we're not going to defend Gulf oil exports. If the Iranians want to start using force against Gulf oil exports, go ahead. Do whatever they want, as long as they don't attack an American or even an American toy, right? Mm. You know, even one of our drones. That's off limits. But they can do whatever they want to the Saudis, to the Emiratis, right? That clearly, I think, without question, greatly emboldened the Iranians, right? Let's again remember, we've got Iran's hardliners in charge. Mm. And let's understand... Their greatest objective, their principal foreign policy goal since 1979, since the Iranian Revolution, has been to break the U.S. alliance with the Gulf states. Mm -hmm. They are trying to drive our forces out of the region so that they can dominate the region, so that they can hopefully change the governments in these countries, so that they can once again become the hegemon of the Middle East, which they believe is the natural order, right, as far as they're concerned, 2,000 years of Persian hegemony over the Middle East, right? What's weird is that they haven't been the hegemon for the last few hundred years. And Trump is now giving them the opportunity to do so. He said, I'm not protecting Gulf oil exports. And that is forcing the Gulf states to do two things that are very, very dangerous. And there's a third one out there. One, they're pushing back on the Iranians themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So we had this Mysterious attack on an Iranian tanker last weekend, which just happened to be off the coast of Saudi Arabia. And by the way, the only other the other coast on the other side of it was Egypt, Mm -hmm. where there's no one who has the capability to attack that Iranian tanker. So this was clearly the Saudis uh, pushing back on the Iranians, but the Saudis have also been forced. To think about actually reconciling with the Iranians, kowtowing to them. Their allies, the UAE, the Emirates, they're already there. Uh The Emirates have pulled out of Yemen. They are having talks with the Iranians. They are basically discussing surrender terms with the Iranians. The Saudis have been resisting. And I think this attack on the Iranian tanker is clearly them trying to show the Iranians, we just can't, we won't kowtow the way that the Emirates will. We'll talk to you, we may have to make some concessions, but we won't completely surrender. That's one course of action. Short term, very dangerous. They're also simultaneously looking at new alliances. And who are the obvious candidates? Who are the only candidates for them? The Russians and Chinese. Right. Right. And you know, the Chinese well you can make an argument, I've made the argument that someday it might be Entirely possible for the United States to turn over the stability, the maintenance of the stability of the Persian Gulf to the Chinese. They have the same interests that we do. Maybe someday they can do it. They're not there yet. Right. They don't ha- know how to do it. They don't have the capacity to do it. They don't want to do it. When they try, they make a mess. And of course, and we
0: don't want them to do it.
1: That's absolutely yet. true. You and know? the Russians—they're the you know—they are spoilers. Right. They don't have the same interests that we and the Chinese do. They want high prices. They want a contracted oil market. They'd love to push the global economy into recession. That'd be fabulous for them, right? Not good. And then a third possibility we need to be thinking about is the possibility that these states will start to pursue nuclear weapons, Right. right? You know, at the time when we were debating the Iranian nuclear deal, there were a lot of people who were very frightened about the Saudis getting nuclear weapons. One of those books that you mentioned I wrote, I wrote a book in 2013 about how to deal with the Iranian nuclear program. And I took on this issue of, nuclear proliferation. And my point was, look, the Saudis are the biggest risk. But the risk is actually much lower than people realize. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is that the, the Saudis are really counting on us. And as long as we are there in force defending them, they don't need a nuclear weapon. It's actually much better for them to rely on us. And by the way, if they try, we have all kinds of leverage with them to get them to stop. Well, what Trump has now done in the last few months is thrown that away. Right. Mm -hmm. We had this attack on the massive uh, Saudi oil processing facility at Abqaiq. That is a clear escalation by the Iranians. They would not have done that. They would not have mounted this attack if they did not believe that the United States was not going to retaliate. Right. They see a, a, a fissure opening up between the U.S. And, and the Gulf states and they are trying to drive the wedge in. And over time, the more that they're able to do so, the more that the U.S. renegs on the Carter doctrine and the Reagan corollary, renegs on our commitment to defend these states, I think you're going to start to see Saudi Arabia and maybe other countries as well saying, you know what, we can't compete with the Iranians in terms of conventional force, in terms of even unconventional warfare. The only way that we're going to be able to defend ourselves against the Iranians is if we get nuclear weapons ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when that happens under these terms, under the terms that Trump is creating, we're not going to have any leverage to stop them.
0: So explain to me what our current posture is towards Saudi Arabia then, because we saw Trump's saying he's going to send more troops to Saudi Arabia. But the good news is they're going to be like mercenaries, right? Um, right. The Saudis will pay for they're, it. They're going to pay for it as if... And, yeah, that's somehow better. And it's weird. Uh, you know, sometimes Trump says things that that you think you you get what he's talking about, but then no one else hears it the same way. And then you're like, well, maybe I'm the one misunderstanding. Yesterday or the day before in the Oval Office presser thing where the poor Italian prime minister mm-hmm. was like, what have I gotten myself into? Um Trump said, well, you know, I mean, getting back to your contradictory things in, in the Trump agenda, he was in almost in the same breath. He's talking about how we should just let them fight. Um, but I'm sending Pence and Pompeo over to ask them to stop fighting. Um, you know, you, you got to wonder, like, my, poor Mike Pence. He gets all the way out there. He's like, why did I bring my shoeshine box if I'm not even going to get a meeting? But then he said this thing. And so they can fight over it, and if the Russians want to get in, that's fine. There's just a lot of sand there, and they can play with the sand. And I, what I thought he meant was, there's no oil there, so why do I care about Syria? I could be wrong, but he was so contemptuous of it. He was just like, eh, it's sand, right? Um, he cares about the Saudis. He likes the Saudis. He's sending them some troops, um, sort of like the Golden Company in... in, in uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Um, but... Is it – do the Saudis right now honestly believe that Trump won't – I mean, that tweet where he had said, we're just wait – we're locked and loaded and we're waiting for the Saudis to tell us what to do, which I thought was a really – I did not see that coming in all the America First stuff. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like the fine print pending approval from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, But – how do I how do I reconcile the story that you're telling with the public posture I see from Trump all the time vis-a-vis Saudis, where he seems like he really wants to get their back? Yeah,
1: it is a great question. Um, when you talk to Saudis about Trump, what they, what you hear from them is kind of unbridled fury. Mm-hmm. What they will say about Trump is that Trump is all talk and no action, mm-hmm. right? which is very consistent, right? Any number sure. of people have made the point that he's completely reversed Teddy Roosevelt's wise dictum, right? He's, you know, shout and threaten as loudly as you can and, you know. But carry a small stick. Exactly. Carry a tiny little stick. Yeah.
0: Um, we won't run with the euphemism. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, he, he says lots of things that they kind of like. Right. He does nothing. He does not have their back on anything that they believe he's committed to. I mean, I gave you that example beforehand where, again, as far as the Saudis are concerned, he made an explicit commitment to them to back in December to keep the troops in Syria and then uh, the Saudis go into OPEC and they, mm. you know, do their they do what they were supposed to do, which is
0: their end for, of the quid pro quo. Exactly. Yeah.
1: They fight for the lower price of oil and Trump reneges on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Turns right around and announces that the the troops are going to be pulled out, throws everything into chaos. And, you know, they can point to that over and over again mm-hmm. with regard to, you know, that that remark about about Saudi. I interpreted it completely different mm-hmm. differently and I interpreted it the way that the Saudis did, which is that this is Trump setting us up to be the fall guys, that he doesn't want to be blamed for this, mm-hmm. that whatever happens, he wants to blame us, Right. that, you know, he really doesn't want to strike at all. And he knows full well that we don't want to be the ones for it. Because the Saudi position is, you know, yes, the Saudis would really like us to go to war with Iran. Mm-hmm. No question about it. They think that that would solve a lot of problems. Let's be clear so about So do that. the Israelis. Yep, so exactly. So does Bibi. Yeah, yeah. lots of people do. But what they're very frightened of is that the United States would start a war with the Iranians and then walk away Mm -hmm. and leave them to the tender mercies of the Iranians, which is not a war that they can win. And they've Mm -hmm. been very consistent with Trump behind the scenes saying, look, if you're going to strike the Iranians, we will support you, but we will only support you if you are serious about prosecuting this war to its conclusion now that doesn't mean regime change Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean two hundred thousand american soldiers marching on tehran I think the Saudis would tell you they think that the Iranians can only go a few rounds and then they'll stop. Mm-hmm. But they want to make sure that the United States is prepared to go a few rounds with Iran, mm-hmm. not just poke the hornet's nest and walk away. Right? They've never gotten a sense. In fact, they've consistently gotten the sense from Trump that he isn't willing to do that. And therefore, what they've consistently said to him is... If you will go the full distance, if you will fight the Iranians till they back down, which we don't think will take very much. But if you do that, we will back you. Otherwise, we're not interested. And Trump has more or less been using that as an excuse for his own inaction, right. Right? which, again, is just infuriating to the Saudis. Right? Because their feeling is the Iranians will. And I think they're right. I think the Iranians would back down mm-hmm. very quickly because they have enormous respect mm-hmm. for American conventional power. Now, the one caveat to that is that, you know, Trump has so consistently said he doesn't want a war with Iran. Mm-hmm. I think the Iranians now believe it. Right? I think that the Iranian hardliners believe that Trump is absolutely unwilling to go to war with them almost under any circumstances. And so even if Trump mounted some, you know, first, I think I expect that they will hit Saudi again, right? Especially in response from this attack on the oil tanker. Um, They're going to have to figure out how, you know, where the U.S. troops are because they aren't going to want to hit the U.S. troops, right? But they'll be able to figure that out when they can figure out what to hit without endangering U.S. troops, they'll hit something. Um, My guess is Trump does nothing. But even if he did something, my guess is that, you know, there's a good likelihood that the Iranians will come right back at us yeah. because they're, they think that Trump won't go more than one round with them. That maybe, again, he'll just poke the hornet's nest and then run away because right. he's afraid of them. And that's just incredibly dangerous, right? That is what we saw from the Iranians in, in 1987. And it took the Reagan administration really ramping things up to convince the Iranians, no, we will stick this out. Because remember, the Iranians saw us run from Lebanon right. in 1984. And again, it's much more complicated than that, but that's how they saw it. Mm-hmm. And so their assumption was the Americans won't stick this out. We poke them a few times, they'll leave. And again, the Reagan administration had to come back. And again, at the end of the day, it didn't take much yeah. American military effort to convince the Iranians that they were going to lose and they needed to stop. But it did take more than a couple of rounds.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, you just you factor in the fact that we, we can't go down the Afghan rabbit hole. But it is pretty obvious that we're trying really, really hard to extricate ourselves there and basically figure out a way to not lose too much face doing it. And you add it to the fact that Trump is locking in on this uh, no more Middle East wars. Lindsey Graham's a warmonger. You know, anybody who disagrees with him about this, it's very difficult to then turn on a dime and show a lot of stick to and will to engage the Iranians if... You're working on the assumption that he bizarrely is that that Rand Paul represents his base more than any other politician when it comes to foreign policy I just don't think that's the case
1: yeah I, I you know I'm not even to try to get it to wade into the domestic politics I will say that again you know typically what we see from the public opinion polls is the American public can be quite bellicose, and it sure. really is about leadership right right if you get a leader who you know if you get a president who wants to lead in a more belligerent direction, the American public is up for that uh, if you want to lead them in a more pacific direction, the American public can be up for that as well. they tend to trust yeah. their presidents.
0: there but, is Middle East fatigue, and rightly so
1: no question yeah. about it, but you know to go back to the, this point that you and I are both making, just put a fine point on it you know I think to really boil it down, you know the problem here is that Trump is trying hard to avoid wars, but he is doing it in a way that could actually wind up provoking mm-hmm. wars, not just among the region, but wars that we will find it incredibly difficult to stay out of.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So we're running out of time because we have a hard out of here. Um, but um, the the situation with the, I mean, do we call it Syria? I guess we call it Syria, not not the Kurds. You know, we, we don't have a gate yet for any of this. Um, how much... So people are talking about whether or not the... you And you mentioned that the Turks may actually start fighting, you know, the Syrians who are proxies for Iran and for Russia and and all of that. But I always got the sense that Erdogan and Putin actually have each other's number and have an okay relationship. I mean, Erdogan keeps saying that they do. So... Score winners and losers in all of this. I mean, do do you actually think there's going to be a? I mean, in a realpolitik, I can imagine a scenario where it'd be kind of good if Erdogan and Putin were more hostile towards each other, because that is gets gets us back into the more familiar muscle memory of NATO, right? Because then Turkey is more within the fold, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. So who comes out of this a winner? Who comes out of this a loser? Sure,
1: right. And let's also remember we are simultaneously sa- sanctioning Turkey right. while we're doing We're doing
0: something we greenlit.
1: Correct, right. which is, again, bizarre, right? right. Um, all right, winners and losers. Uh, the obvious losers are the Kurds. Mm-hmm. But I would also say the United States and all our allies are also losers in this. Um, the big global winner is Putin, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, we, we used the analogy beforehand. Everybody is. It's not like, you know, we came up with this brilliant new analogy, but, you know, the, the kind of uh, poker uh, right. game. Um, you know, you, you have to say that Vladimir Putin, uh, he's got a very weak hand. He's had a weak hand for a long time. He plays it really well. Yeah. Now, again, in part, it's because we keep showing him our hand and asking him how much we should bet. Right. Um, But nevertheless, he plays his hand very well. And I don't think there's any question that Russia has been the big winner in all of this. Russia's ally Syria is the big winner within Syria itself. The Russians are seen all across the region as a great power that can have an impact in the Middle East, that is constant, that sticks by its friends, that can get the Americans to back off. At this point, almost anybody can, but that's useful too. The Russians globally were big winners from this regionally, it is the Iranians, right? And again, let's, let's bring our two conversations together in this. What we've seen in the Gulf over the last four or five months is the erosion, if not destruction. Right. We're certainly kind of the coming up on the destruction of 40 years of American policy. The foundation of the American position in the Middle East has been that alliance with the Gulf states. Something that actually goes back to, you know, famously 1945 and Roosevelt meeting with then King Abdulaziz ibn right. Saud. Right. The Iranians are driving a stake through that. Uh, and Trump is, you know, opening up his coat to let them do so. Right. Simultaneously, the U.S. is betraying its allies in Kurdistan, allowing the Syrian-Iranian-Russian alliance to retake that territory. Uh, far from supporting our NATO ally, we are sanctioning our NATO ally. So all across the board, what you're seeing is Iran making enormous gains. They are the dominant power in Lebanon. They are the dominant power in Syria. They are increasingly the dominant power in Iraq. They are increasingly the dominant power in Yemen. And they are becoming a you know the, the dominating power in the Persian Gulf mm-hmm. because we're refusing to enforce the Carter Doctrine. It's Reagan corollary. You know, across the region, and you, I hear this again and again, Again and again, from Arab friends, from Israeli friends, Turkish friends, Kurdish friends, you name it, is we are midwifing the rebirth of the Persian Empire.
0: Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? <laughs> um, okay, uh, Ken, I could go on for this for a while, but we really do have a heart out of here, and um, I got to do some housekeeping. But um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm not going to ask you to predict what happens next. Thank you. That's crazy. I do wanted to tell you, um, Jack here showed me his phone while you were talking. Oh, no. I know you were worried about that this might not happen, but it's now official. Trump has picked his own resort for the next G7 summit. (laughs) So there is a silver lining here.
1: Thank goodness.
0: (laughs) Anyway, Ken Pollock of the American Enterprise Institute, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me back on, Jonah.
0: Okay. Thanks again to Ken Pollock. We got to get out of here, but I do want to say thank you again to everybody who's shown so much interest in the dispatch. You can go to the dispatch.com to sign up for free newsletters right now, or you can sign up for the lifetime membership thing. That's your call. Um, but go to the dispatch.com to, uh, sign up for newsletters to so check it out. Go find our manifesto. If you like, um, please spread the word about this podcast and our newsletters. Um, we really appreciate all the support and we can't wait for the full launch. Um, Early next year. Um, And until then, thanks to everybody, thanks to Jack, and um, I'll see you next time. Okay. Um, and we, we're kind uh, of
1: Jack, this—do you care which mic I use? Uh, use two, please. This one. Yeah. Okay. These are just ignore this. Okay. Extraneous
0: microphones. I just uh,
1: think I yeah, can get closer to Jonah. Something I'm always like looking to do. <laughs> there you
0: are there know, are He pushes people away. Like like. like uh,